Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Tulsi Gabbard was in town this week for a town hall. After the town hall was over, she was able to answer a few questions. Are one of the candidates that was left off the debate stage. But during the period when candidates were qualifying, you were with your U.S. Army National Guard training. Yeah. Do you think it was disrespectful of the DNC to the military not to make some special allowance for that? I think the the big issue here uh, is is bigger than one about me. It's uh, it's about transparency in the process and the lack of it, uh, because unless there is transparency in this whole process, then voters lose trust that the process is actually working for them. Uh, so. This is the change that I'm calling for from the DNC is to bring about transparency and some explanations and some answers about the very arbitrary decisions that they have made uh, and how that's impacting voters having a real choice in this election. But do you think they should have made some allowance for that? that you, were uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to dwell on the past. I think it's important. Again, we look forward and see how can we continue to make things better. Transparency, accountability and always remembering uh who is at the heart of our democracy and our elections is the people. We've got to make sure that they have faith that the elections are working for them. Tulsi, can I ask an add-on question to that? Sure. I was just at the DNC meeting last week covering that, and I witnessed some of the lack of transparency that you're bringing up. Uh, one of the things that I noticed was that Tom Perez has uh, 75 at-large delegates that he appoints, and he was able to pull these out as proxy votes when he needed to to change the outcome of a vote. Um, so what do we need to do to fix this? Because obviously the, UR the URC did not fix More it. More people need to get involved in the process to be involved in those rule changes in the committee. You know, we, we saw some changes come about post-2016 because you had a lot of folks who were really frustrated and angry about what happened and they wanted to do something instructive about it. They ran for those local delegate positions. They ran for those positions on the state central committees. They ran for those national delegate positions so that they could have a seat at the table and bring about those changes and those reforms. That's what needs to happen. With so many people taking a strong stance on the issue in Kashmir, what is your personal um, ideas to how we deal with such a complex situation instead of painting it as a black and white issue? Yeah, well, first of all, recognizing that it is complex. Uh, it, is, it is not uh, as clear cut as this one side versus this one side. And I think it's important as outsiders looking in to understand the complex history of Kashmir and what has happened to people there in the past and how many families were driven from their homes there uh, and fled and have not been able to return home. Uh, how the previous government had policies in place that uh, made homosexuality illegal, uh, that suppressed the voices of women, that made it, I met a woman uh, a couple of days ago who said that uh, she as a Kashmiri woman had no rights to own property uh, there in her homeland. So. Uh, these, these changes are things that are happening in a sovereign country. They're very difficult. There are concerns that, that should be addressed about human rights violations and civil rights violations. Uh, but overall, I think this is a situation, again, in a sovereign country that must be worked out by all sides who have a stake in their own future there. Thank you. Um, hi, Tulsi. Great hi. to see you again. Me too. Um, you know, this morning, uh, Trump pulled out of the secret uh, meeting at Camp, at Camp David with uh, Taliban, and um, he was never served 
military and you did, and when you're, if you were our commander in chief now, or when you are, how would you deal with this situation with the Taliban, please? Uh, well, first of all, bring our troops home from Afghanistan. That should have happened a long time ago. Uh, I think we have to be willing to and have the courage to meet with adversaries, dictators, other uh, elements, entities, people who have done or or hold views that we find to be abhorrent in the interest of peace and national security. There has to be a very clear goal and objective that best serve the interests of the American people, and our role must be a productive one towards that objective of peace and security. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you for you being here. Have Thanks. a good night. Appreciate Thank you for being so patient. Thanks for hanging Thanks. out. Thank you. And here's the audio of the town hall. I want to ask you guys something. Are you excited to see Chelsea or what?
But since, even from when she was 21 years old, her political career, she was elected into the state house, her unit got deployed. Does she stay in office and further her political career, or does she serve and get deployed with her unit? She volunteered, stepped down from office, and she served. God and serve other people. 
problem, do something about it. Don't complain about it. Do something about it. We have something we call in Hawaii, we call it kuleana. And it's, it's hard to explain, but it's like your responsibility in the world and your community on the planet is your passion and your responsibility. And so their, their push was always, whatever path it is, do it in service to others. Because it's not, it's not about us. And this, so she started a nonprofit organization. She cared about the environment. She started a nonprofit organization when she was 16 years old called Healthy Hawaii Coalition. This was a, a, a issue, the environment was something that she's already always cared about, something that got her into politics to begin with. But this path is always surprising for us because when we were little, so there are five of us, She's the, we have three older brothers, she's the fourth and I'm the youngest. And growing up, she is, oh, I mean, she's by nature an introvert, but when we were little, she was painfully shy. Like, she wouldn't even answer the phone because she didn't know who was calling at our house. And when we went to the grocery store, she would make me talk to the, the clerk or the, you know, to find out where something is. This is how shy she, like, she was like, terrified. So how do you get from that person to somebody who's running for president of the United States? She understood it wasn't about her. So the fear was real. When she ran for state house when she was 21, and she had to go knock on doors in her community. Like, that's not always fun, even if you're an extrovert. You don't know how they're gonna be on the other side when they open that door. Imagine somebody who is painfully shy, sitting in the car, trying to build up the courage to knock on that stranger's door. And what got her through that and every other obstacle has been, it's not about me. I'm not doing this for me. It doesn't matter what they think about me. I'm here to fight for the people. And that's all that really matters. And that's how you get from there. To every decision that she's made. So she, from the state house, she has served on the city council. She served in Congress. The decisions she made in the military. It is always in this place of how can I best be of service? And you'll see that in her life. Another thing I get, or that people say that is, I think is pretty funny is, how is she gonna stand up against Donald Trump? <laughs> like, if they're on the debate stage, like, how is she gonna, can she handle him? <laughs> And that like makes me laugh, right? Because she's a badass. I don't know if you like, she's a soldier and she's a badass. And I don't know if you've seen interviews that she's been in that have not been the most fair. Just put it politely. And how calm and cool and collected she is. Because you can
hear a lot that like Donald Trump is <laughs> doesn't have a chance. Because all the you know when they do these personal attacks, again, it's not about her. It's not about she's having ego where it's like, oh my gosh, they're attacking me. It's really her focus is always where you like keep it coming. I am fighting. I know why I'm here, and I know why I'm in this fight. It is for you. Her life has shown just that. And so as you consider the field of who you, if you haven't decided of who you want to vote for, look at their lives. Not just what they're planning now and their proposals now, but what have they, like, what have they done for their entire lives? I'm glad that today I got a little bit of time to share with you what I've seen my whole life and what a role model she has been for me. And so I'm very proud today to introduce you to my sister and the future president of the United States. Love for our planet, 
what is necessary to protect each other, to protect our planet, to fight for our future. And that's what this is all about. Now, my sister's going to be able to give my speech if I'm not careful. But she hit on the most important points of why we are gathered here, because of what's at stake. That we're gathered here motivated by this principle of service above self. We recognize how much and how long the government of the rich and powerful has caused so much suffering for the people. This is Katie, my friend from Hawaii. We realize how much suffering has come about because of this government of the rich and powerful. And we know our potential. We are reminded, I just read Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address again yesterday morning, and it was beautiful. I felt so inspired reading those few words, reminding us all about who we are, and where we can go together. You know, in those words, he talked about the birth of a new nation on the basis of freedom and equality for all people. And he talked about the great sacrifices that were made on that battlefield, in that war, that those who gave their full measure, they paid the ultimate price, sacrificing their lives. And the best way to honor that great sacrifice for all of us, not just for them then, but for all of us, the best way to honor that great sacrifice is to ensure this new nation is led by a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. forward for us so we know what we must do. We know what we must do and we also know that we are the only ones who can do it. Because when it comes right down to it, none of us are so naive as to think that we can sit on our couch at home and think that the self-serving politicians in Washington are all of a sudden going to have an epiphany and say, you know what? Yeah, we'll give up our, our big money special interests, pack dollars, we'll give up the power that we have, the influence that we have, and instead really focus on how we can put the people first. It's not going to happen on its own. Why is that? Because this very few, those very few in the positions of power are afraid of losing it and will do all they can to protect it. There is nothing that can change that other than us, than we the people making sure that our voices are heard. Now we can go through some of the examples of the ramifications and the consequences of the status quo. What are the ramifications if we decide, you know what, going out and voting is hard. Going out and registering other people to vote is hard. Going out and campaigning is hard. Going out and setting your own life and your time aside to go out and do this work is hard. Can be challenging, yeah. Put your own interests aside for a time and go out and do 
the good work for others. You know what, let's just stay home. You know what will continue to happen? We'll continue to see a broken healthcare system that rewards the rich and punishes the poor. We'll continue to see healthcare laws that are written with carve-outs and loopholes that benefit big insurance companies and big pharmaceutical companies. While people in this country are left behind, we have tens of millions of people who are either completely uninsured or underinsured, meaning they are just one healthcare emergency away from financial disaster. Tens of millions of people right now. We have people reliant on Medicare for their healthcare, for their prescription drugs, for their medicine. And yet, written into our healthcare law, it says that Medicare is not allowed to negotiate lower prescription drug prices with these big pharmaceutical corporations. Not allowed by U.S. law. The very law that is supposed to be working for us, but it's not. And how does that happen? You've got some high-powered lobbyists who are paid a hell of a lot of money to go in there and get their seat at the table to help write these laws to benefit their bosses and increase their profits while leaving the rest of us behind. Well, we have price gouging going on by these big pharmaceutical companies and people are literally afraid for their lives because they can't afford the medicine they need. And here's the worst part about it all, is the United States government is the largest purchaser of prescription drugs of anyone in the world, anyone in the world, we as taxpayers are their biggest customer. So, you have any small business owners or business owners here? We got a few of you. So you've got a really important customer. You value them, right? You value them. You want to make sure you've got a happy customer. The purchasing power that we have as taxpayers is huge. The leverage that we have is great. Imagine if we actually use that to serve the people, to drive these prices down, rather than just writing it away and giving it away in the laws we have now. This is the consequence of the status quo. There are so many different examples that we can point to. Our broken criminal justice system and the fact that we still have private prisons that are earning profits for corporations based on a business model that keeps people in those cells, that keeps those cells full, that keeps those prisons full. Who's writing their paychecks? We are. Those dollars are coming out of our pockets. How is that helping us? How is that helping our country? How is that helping people? How is that helping to reduce the recidivism rates in this country? actually reforming our criminal justice system. It's not. It's doing the exact opposite. Time and time again, we see examples of the laws that are being passed that are not serving the interests of the people, which is the driver for us to recognize that now is our time to bring about that change and bring about an end to the corruption in our own government. Now is the time. profit off the status quo don't want to lose their profits or their power 
and they're afraid of the voices of the people. I remember talking to one of my colleagues in Congress uh, as over the last few years, especially in 2016, we saw more and more grassroots donors fueling campaigns, people giving $5, ten dollars, twenty-seven dollars <laughs> to truly have people power campaigns. And I went to my colleague and I said, my God, this is amazing. This is amazing to see how many people are getting involved in this process. This is true people power. And the colleague that I spoke to, he said, Tulsi, you don't understand, this is a threat to every incumbent in Washington. But he wasn't smiling when he said it. He was dead serious. And he said, this is a threat. This means that you will have more people fueled by more grassroots donors running more people power campaigns, challenging the status quo, challenging the incumbents in office, threatening that power. Because most people who've been in Washington for a really long time rely on those PAC contributions and those lobbyists and those fancy receptions that they go to to fund their campaigns. This person is no longer serving in Congress. But it just shows the contrast, the contrast of what a people-powered campaign looks like and feels like and what we can accomplish, motivated by love as opposed to those who are motivated by fear. Fear of losing their power, fear of loss, as though that position that you hire us for defines them, that without it, they are nothing. Thinking about themselves rather than those who have entrusted them with their votes and the responsibility to be their voice. This is why I'm so inspired, because whether I'm in cities like Los Angeles or small towns in a place like Ware in New Hampshire, there are people coming together, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Libertarians, coming together and saying, we stand united. Because we know, we know that united we stand, divided we fall, and respecting each other as fellow Americans, drawing our strength from that appreciation that we have for the freedoms and principles that make up the bedrock of our country, provide us that space to be able to bring our ideas together, putting those principles of service above self at the forefront, caring for each other and solving problems. Actually solving problems. And this is what's possible. This is what's possible. I know there's a lot of cynicism and frustration. We were at a town hall in Iowa the other day where a young woman who probably was in her mid-twenties came up to me at the end of it afterward and she pulled me aside and she just said, Tulsi, you know, I just, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to have a government of, by, and for the people. 
I don't think it's possible to trust that we would have a government who would, once we end these wasteful wars, then take those dollars, take the dollars that we would have otherwise continued wasting on these wars and use them to serve the people. I don't trust that they'll do that. So I think they'll go and they'll try to cut taxes or they'll go and try to you know, do something else with this money and not actually use it to serve the people. And my heart hurt a little bit to hear her say that, but it just speaks to how deep the cynicism runs because our government has failed the people for so long. But what I shared with her is that, you know, what, is, what, is, what are your options here? What are your options? Are you gonna turn your back and go back into your own little safe space and pretend like nothing, none of this is going on? and continue allowing the status quo of the rich and powerful to run away with things? Or are you gonna stand up and fight? Stand up and fight. Because what do we do for those we love? We fight for those we love. We protect those we love. Remembering always the example set by Dr. King. Reminding us that in times when we feel like we are surrounded by darkness, when hate and bigotry and divisiveness is on all sides, he reminds us that darkness can't drive out darkness. Who knows the words? Only light can do that. That hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Say it with me. Only love can do that. That is what makes the difference. That is what makes the difference. When we stand united, motivated by this love, we make sure that every single American in this country gets the quality care they need when they need it. When we stand united, we finally bring about an end to this failed war on drugs. We bring about the real reforms to our criminal justice system that we need. Prison reform, sentencing reform, ending cash bail, ending private prisons. I know a lot of you have been fighting these battles right here in California and making great progress. You see the kind of change that's possible. That seems impossible at first, but when people stand up and fight for each other, change happens. We win. Exactly. Look at our, our environment. Unfortunately, the word climate change has become a very divisive term. Depending on what kind of room you're in, you bring this up, you'll either get cheers or you'll get boos. So let's take the rhetoric put it aside, and just talk to each other as people. What do we care about? What is the thing that is central to our existence as humanity? Clean water? Clean water? Where's our Standing Rock people? Mini Wichoni? Water is life. Water is life. None of us can exist without it. Clean air. Clean air. Having a safe place 
for you, your loved ones, your children, and wanting to leave that safe and beautiful place behind for their kids and their kids and their kids to come. This is a people issue. This is a human concern. It's not a Democrat or a Republican concern or progressive or conservative concern. This is a human concern. So we come together on this common ground, then we can begin to help make better choices, not only in our own lives, but better policies that will preserve that future. That's what I know we can accomplish when we come together to make sure that we are making this transition off of fossil fuels and to build a strong, green, renewable energy future. A future where, a future where you're not forced to choose between a good paying job and ruining our environment or no work and protecting our environment. That's a false choice. We can and must have both. a lot of other issues we can go down the list. Immigration reform. This is an issue that we're deeply concerned about with what's happening at the border, with our fellow veterans who are continuing to be deported out of the country that they put their lives on the line to serve. Immigration crisis that sees children taken out of the arms of their parents. There is so much more that we have in common when we look at what we are concerned about than we often realize. Our legal immigration system is broken. It's hurting our economy, hurting small businesses, farmers, families, those who are trying to be reunited with their loved ones. We lack resources at the border to be able to make sure we're providing the judges and administrators to be able to adjudicate those cases and claims for those seeking asylum in our country. The whole system is broken and it's not working for anyone. We can change that. If we get out of our little tribes and our camps where we sit and point fingers at each other and scream at each other and instead come out and come together and actually talk about the problem and how we solve it together. Sure, we'll talk about a little bit more in the questions and answers, but you know that there is an issue that's central to the rest of these. That issue is the cost of war. The cost of war. Every veteran who's here, to ask you if you don't mind, please raise your hand or stand and just allow us to recognize you for your service. It is those who have seen the cost of war firsthand who fight hardest for peace. Those of us who said that final farewell to friends of ours not through a hug or a pat on the back, but through a salute to empty boots, a rifle, and an empty helmet. Families 
at home. 4,419 families never got to say their final goodbye to their loved one who was serving in Iraq. They saw them come home in a coffin. 2,524 families never got to welcome their loved one home from Afghanistan. Tens of thousands more injured, both visible and invisible wounds, scars that they will carry with them forever. This cost of war is real. These aren't just numbers for so many of us. These are our friends, our brothers and sisters, our moms and dads, sons and daughters. We can never forget, we will never forget the price that they pay, the sacrifice that's made, the cost of war that so often goes unseen is the one paid for by every single American. Over $6 trillion taken out of our pockets since 9-11 alone. Over $6 trillion taken out of our classrooms, out of our healthcare clinics, out of our roads, bridges, out of our basic infrastructure needs, and for what? To pay for counterproductive, wastely wars, wasteful wars that have undermined our national security, taken American lives, and caused death and pain and destruction in the countries where we've waged these wars. Why is no one really talking about this? when this issue, where our taxpayer dollars are going, is central to every other issue that we face. Every other issue that we face. Our foreign policy and the decisions that are made are at the heart of everything else. we talk about the cost of war and why we must end it, we can see the connection, we can connect the dots. I'm running for president to bring about an end, an end to these wasteful wars. arms race that is ensuing, getting worse because of things like Trump tearing up the INF Treaty, negotiated over 30 years ago between Reagan and Gorbachev, a thing back then that the pundits in Washington said was impossible. This was an impossible agreement. Why did they do it? These two guys who were supposedly rivals and adversaries came together, negotiated this historic treaty for the sake of peace and the safety of their people, all of their people. Instead of actually recognizing there were some challenges with the treaty and doing the work that a leader does in strengthening it, 
Trump tore it up, threw it in the trash, walked away, and then immediately started telling big defense contractors, go ahead, we're going to pay you billions of dollars to build more missiles that were banned under that treaty because we're in an arms race now and we've got to win. But guess what? There is no winning in this. There is no winning in this race. There is only a loss, a loss of safety and security, not only for the American people, but for the world. The only ones who are laughing their way to the bank is the military-industrial complex that's building more of So when we talk about what's at stake, we really are talking about our future because these are existential threats that we're facing. With these increasing threats, nuclear strategists are talking about we're closer to the break of nuclear catastrophe than we ever have been before. This is real. We're not here to play games. We are fighting for our lives and fighting for our planet and fighting for our future. That is why we will never quit. Debates or no debates, we are driving on. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why, because we know that it is we the people who decide who gets to lead our country. forget that sometimes, and they think, actually, you know what? People aren't really paying attention, they don't really care, so hey, let's just winnow down the number of people who we think you should be able to choose from. Let these people in Washington, yeah, they have your best interests at heart, right? No. No. We're not playing that game anymore. playing those games, they didn't get the memo, that's alright, we're driving on, so March 3rd is a really big day here in California, March 3rd is your Democratic primary, it is earlier this year than it ever has been before, which means you have a unique ability to help impact the momentum and message that you send to the country, so what I'm really trying to say is, y'all got a lot of work to do, we have a lot of work to do, We have a big state with proportional delegates, it's no winner take all. So with your support, I know we can do very well here in California. With your support, our movement can build and continue to grow. And it is with this movement, it is with this movement that is about bringing people together. 
putting the interest and the well-being of the people in our country and our planet at the forefront of the decisions our leaders make, bringing about a government of, by, and for the people that will allow us to truly bend the arc of history away from war and towards a bright future with peace, opportunity, prosperity, and equality for all people.
sure that these guns are not getting into the hands of those who seek to do harm to others. Now, a few months ago in Congress, we passed a, a bill, H.R. 8, that would make sure you have universal background checks. There are other bills that we've passed that have to do with closing the loophole in our laws that allowed the Charleston shooter to massacre people as they gathered in their place of worship. We've passed some of these bills that I believe are common sense, pieces of gun safety legislation that uphold our Second Amendment rights while again making sure that those who would inflict this devastating harm and murder on others are not allowed to do so. Now these bills are sitting in the Senate right now. It's up to the Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, to bring those bills to the floor in the Senate for a vote, but he won't even do that. I think it says a lot about leaders who refuse to allow the members of that body to represent their constituents and exercise their right to vote. What are they afraid of? Being held accountable, being on the record, they're failing to do their job when they're not allowing the people's voices to be heard. Now, I think there's a deeper issue here because even with the numbers of these massacres and these shootings continuing to increase, we see them in the headlines and we mourn and grieve with the families who have lost their loved ones. Sadly, there are families every single day in our country, in cities like Chicago and others who are losing their children, who are losing their loved ones to gun violence. But their names aren't ever heard on the news. So there are illegal guns, gang violence, crime. There are other things that are happening here that we need to address. Passing some of these gun safety laws are important, but it's not going to solve the bigger challenge that we have. And there are a lot of things that are driving this. So we together as a country need to recognize this is not about us versus them, but it's about us coming together as people and standing up for our lives. to move forward together as a result. I'm going to thank you for uh, mentioning Abraham Lincoln because America's moral obligation to our veterans must be more genuine. Here in West Los Angeles, we have the biggest and the busiest of the VA homes. I'm sure you know about it. And I'm sure you've probably heard about the land grab issue that's been debated there. I, uh, Senator Isaacson and Senator Tester called for a voice vote to amend the West Los Angeles Leasing Act that was supposed to fix that. And, and by adding one word, new. And by adding that word, new, they grandfathered in some of the, uh, well, they, they said so they could save the deals. To, uh, to our leadership that wasn't aware, but the deals that we're saving were the good old boys club that exists there. And we have exposed a lot of things in the challenge of that land grab. We feel that if we can begin to 
genuinely care for the veterans, the 4,000 homeless veterans that are in California alone, uh, we can begin to model that for the larger population uh, solution for, for homelessness. We need your support in this, and we need a champion, and we believe in you. I have your back. I'll do whatever I can to be able to help you in this ongoing specific challenge, but in the greater challenges that you're raising. That we are still seeing around 20 of our brothers and sisters in uniform take their own lives every day. It is an epidemic that too often goes unnoticed but deals directly with the fact that there are barriers to care that's getting in the way of these friends of ours getting the help that they need. During my second deployment, I was a platoon leader. And years after coming home, one of my soldiers, a happy-go-lucky sergeant, who was always there when you needed him, always got the job done, fell victim to this epidemic and took his own life. This is still happening because they're not getting the help that they need. And we still have homeless veterans in communities all across this country who aren't getting the services that they have earned. Our brothers and sisters are being left behind because of politicians who give lip service on Veterans Day like to come and shake our hands and say thank you for your service. But then turn around and shortchange our veterans through a lack of resources going to the programs that actually work. Instead, seeing a lot of taxpayer dollars being wasted in this bureaucracy that too often serves itself rather than serving our veterans. And these politicians who don't think twice about continuing to make more veterans by pushing for more of these wasteful, counterproductive wars. Dishonoring the service and the sacrifice, the choice that's made by veterans to put their lives on the line for our country by sending them on missions that are not worthy of their sacrifice. First of all, the um, outstanding debt that's buried under. And in other areas of need in Puerto Rico. And there are many. Unfortunately, I was grateful to have been able to be there for a couple of days to join Puerto Rican people from all across the island, people who came from all parts of the world to stand up against corruption. And to bring voice for the people because they saw their how their government was not working for them, and they decided to do something about it. And I just gotta tell you, you know, for those of you who saw little clips on the evening news about this, uh, you probably saw, and this happened actually while I was there, I did a live interview, and while I was talking, my sister was in the other room, 
And I was talking about how people from all walks of life were coming together, joyfully, celebrating, playing music, dancing, calling for the resignation of a corrupt governor. But while I was talking about this, they were showing B-roll footage of uh, tear gas and rioters and people who were in dark masks and painting this picture that was so far from reality. It just shows what's wrong with our media. They're not telling the truth. In Old San Juan, was very early in the morning, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning. Yes, there were some people, some bad apples there who were trying to cause trouble. But what we also saw were people who were coming out and painting over graffiti, protesters sweeping the streets, picking up the trash, cleaning up Old San Juan because they love their home and they love their town. The key to our bringing about the kind of change to address the corruption in government that has gotten in the way of uh, federal aid getting to the people who need it, and that has stood in the way of being able to help bring about the kind of recovery reform to deal with the crushing debt that Puerto Rico is dealing with has come from that corruption. Rooting out that corruption is first and foremost and for the federal government standing with the people of Puerto Rico as fellow Americans, hand in hand to move forward to a new beginning. The challenge there is complex. There's no simple, easy answer to it. It's going to take big change in Puerto Rico, and it's going to take support from the federal government to be able to do it. My commitment to the people of Puerto Rico is the same as my commitment to every American in this country to continue to fight for you. Thank you. This is a really important question, one that we've been battling for a long time. Uh, to your first point, isn't it sad that it becomes an act of bravery to tell the truth? We need more of it. GMOs in Congress, there was a bill called the Dark Act a couple years ago 
It's actually under the previous administration. Uh, that's what we called it. It's not the name that was on the bill, but the real goal of the bill was to keep the American people in the dark about the kinds of GMOs and other things that are in the food that we eat. Now, this bill was marketed as a transparency bill, as a labeling bill, but it was everything but that. It was basically uh, a bill encouraging big corporations to mark the food as a voluntary act, but if they felt like letting us know what was in it, they could. Uh, I've introduced and supported legislation year after year that would do exactly the opposite of that, to make sure that we have mandatory labeling that's making it clear so we know and can make informed choices about the food that we eat. And as president, I would get the corruption out of the Food and Drug Administration. And the agency that continues to block the banning of foods that so many other countries have already banned and that they've proven to be harmful. Unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of examples of this as reports come out, more people get sick and they're tracing these things back to substances and things that are found in the food that we eat every day and that we feed to our kids. How did we start this conversation? The consequences of the rich and powerful. This is yet another example of how deep the corruption runs and where we need to make that change. This also comes in how we pass the farm bill, what kinds of subsidies are going to what kind of corporations. We've got to stop subsidizing companies like Monsanto and Syngenta, these multinational, multinational agribusiness corporations. They don't give a shit about our soil. They don't care about the quality of food that we eat. They're in this for their bottom line and their profits. Instead, we should say, let, let our money talk. Let's support our small farmers. Let's support those who are farming sustainably. Let's support those who are pushing for regenerative farming. Who are able to grow food and regenerate the beauty and the strength of our soil, making sure that it's there to serve us for generations to come. Take one in the back there, yes sir, the white shirt.
floors. You know, we saw it happen in Texas recently, etc. Um, but even though I agree with pretty much everything you said over here to this gentleman, I think the the question of uh, assault weapons is what bothers me the most because, well, wait a minute, you might not be on my side here. Um, a lot of people don't know what a lot of people think AR and AR-15 stands for assault rifle, and it's not. Right? It's it's Armalite Rifle, the company that designed it way back. Okay. A lot of people don't know what semi-automatic means. They hear semi-automatic and they think that's a dangerous weapon. Semi-automatic is like a revolver, one one pull, one shot. Right? The bans that we're seeing here in California, especially, uh, you can't have it. It's it's an assault rifle, according to the politicians here in California, if it has a pistol grip, right? If it has an adjustable stock, uh, if it has an adjustable stock, it makes the, the, the firearm safer to use. If it has a pistol grip, it's safer to use and pull, as you know, of course, but most people don't, right? So since I recently learned that you uh, are in favor of a ban on quote-unquote assault weapons, knowing that there are other rifles such as the, the Mini-14, the Mini-14 is also a 223 caliber, which is a right? But when you find them, you typically find them in wood frame. They're all mostly wood. But the AR-15, you typically see them all black with the adjustable stock, and they look like scary weapons when they're just rifled. And just because a, a mass shooter or, or, or multiple mass shooters choose to use that weapon, doesn't mean that, that they won't use another one like the Mini-14. The, the Virginia Tech shooter used pistols, right? So what can you tell me or us about this this faux scare thing about assault weapons? They, they just the rifles. What we've seen in. Uh some of the shootings that we've had, and I understand your, your point, and, and some of your points I agree with, but I do support the assault weapons ban legislation that we have on Congress. <laughs> weapons that can, guns that can very easily be turned into uh, these high, the high capacity magazines and other adjustments that are often made that allow for more loss of life in a very short period of time. I think that when we look at some of the, I don't know the details of California's laws, and I'd be happy to look into that, but ultimately, uh, I think we've seen how some of these laws don't actually help achieve the objective that we're seeking to achieve, which is protecting lives. And I think that's where, as we look at the details of the legislation that we're pushing, how we can accomplish that, taking away the divisive rhetoric, then we can actually make progress. Now, you and I may differ uh, on this issue. I think that there are other guns, as you said, that can also be adjusted. We've got to look at each of those circumstances, once again, to make sure that we do what we can to protect human life without undermining and eroding our Second Amendment. I think there's a way forward for this. I really do.
Yes, ma'am. Your last question.
if we snapped our fingers and got it all done tomorrow, it wouldn't even come close to addressing the global crisis that's before us. Leading with the foreign policy of cooperation rather than conflict provides us that opportunity, understanding that we don't have to see the world through a win-lose proposition. It is not a zero-sum game. That in order for us to win, in order for the American people to do well, that doesn't mean everybody else has to lose. No. We are stronger when we stand together. When others are prosperous and we are prosperous, we are stronger as society in this world. There is so much opportunity. There is so much good and so much potential. And we here in the United States are uniquely equipped to lead the way towards that brighter future. That is what I hope to do as your president and commander in chief.